In this episode, I am once again joined by Tibetologist and Tantric Buddhist meditation teacher, Glenn Mullen. In this fascinating, story-filled episode, we take a deep dive into Glenn's life as a translator and author. Glenn has authored over 30 books on Tibetan Buddhism, which themselves have been translated into many languages. He has translated an extremely wide range of classical Tibetan literature from some of the greatest minds of that tradition, including many of the Dalai Lamas, Tsongkhapa, and more. We discuss Glenn's personal journey with the Tibetan language, from gaining fluency in the bars and tea houses of 1970s Dharamsala, to studying classic texts with Geshe's and Tulku's in exile. We explore the history of the art of translation in Old Tibet and the evolution of its writing system. Glenn also reveals his surprising stylistic influences as an English language writer and lays out his process when approaching a new work of translation. So without further ado, Glenn Mullen. So, Glenn Mullen, thank you for coming back on the podcast. My honor, my pleasure, and my joy. So today, I thought we'd take a slightly different turn to some of the topics we've been talking about in the last episodes and focus on your work as a translator. You've published over 30 books on Tibetan Buddhism, which themselves have been translated into many languages. And in those books, you've translated an extremely wide range of classical Tibetan literature commentaries, tantric texts, sadhanas, poetry, and you've tackled material by most of the Dalai Lamas and Tsongkhapa and others. I even saw a short translation you did of a Dilga Kense sadhana that he had composed. Mm. You had both the benefit of a formal situation at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives in Dharamsala, as well as an immersion among native speakers in your many years living in the Himalayas. Perhaps we'll start with how did you come to learn Tibetan and how did your relationship with the language unfold over time? Well, certainly my connection with Asia has, I think, both a genetic component and also a kind of a spiritual component, you could say. From the genetic side, my my mother was a British war bride. Her dad was a major in the British Army trying to uh, spread the message of the wonders of British culture far and wide, largely through trade, of course. The Brits in India were never conquerors. They never conquered India as such. They basically just uh, out-traded them, (laughs) you could say, with the British East India Trading Company. But the Brits all fell in love with India and fell in love with the Himalayas and uh, fell in love with Asia in general. So I grew up in that kind of a environment where India was considered something very wonderful, very magical, very spiritual, and uh, sort of China, Tibet, especially Tibet, something extremely mystical. And for instance, when I met the Dalai Lama for the first time in 1972 and I wrote back to my mom, She said, "Uh, oh, Glenn, even if you die tomorrow, you could not have brought a greater honor to this family. (laughs) So from the genetic side, from my mom's side of the family, there was that strong connection with India, Indian culture. And we could say Tibet really was a cultural satellite of India for the last 1500 years until it was invaded by China in the 1950s. It was exclusively an Indian cultural satellite. In fact, Chinese culture was banned from Tibet by law. Translation, use of Chinese script in Tibet, translation of Chinese books into Tibetan, those were all banned in Tibet from 
by law, I think from 793 or something like that, the, after the famous debate at Semya Monastery. So the connection with India and Tibet was very strong. And my granddad was actually in India when Francis' young husband made an expedition into Tibet and uh, went in a lieutenant colonel and came out a mystic. He took a walk in the mountains, went into a trance and changed from a military, you know, sort of aggressive military man into a, became the president, I think, of the Mystical Society of England. So genetically, there was that there, or historically, I could say, through my mom and through her ancestry and what that brings into the house of a young child growing up with, in a house filled with her books. And she was an avid reader and uh, loved everything, to talk about everything about Asia. So there's that. And of course, if we talk about previous lives, we, in, in the, we Socratic uh, Platonists or Platonic Satanists, <laughs> Socratic Platonists or Platonic Socratists, <laughs> Uh, the, the Buddhism and Indian culture is very strongly connected to the idea of reincarnation. And I certainly feel there's some connection there as well. So when I went to India, to uh, when I heard the Dalai had opened a, an institute for Western people, and I went there, and I met Dalai Lama, and I met Ling Rinpoche, Trijan Rinpoche, his two gurus, and I met the two lamas whom he appointed to teach to Western people. It really just felt like going home. There was nothing exotic about it. There was nothing foreign about it. I mean, just being in the presence of any of those five or six great lamas uh, that I met in back in 1972 was just like sitting with my dad or my mom or my granddad. It was there was no sense of this is a foreigner or these people are from an alien culture or a, some forbidden city or anything like that. It was something completely, completely uh, intimate. I would say a sense of complete intimacy and sort of relaxed connectivity, connectivity. And so naturally, I threw myself into the training and into the studies. And part of that, the Dalai Lama had also set up the library with a, as well as just a spiritual teaching or philosophical and meditative and yogic training. There was also language classes offered. So I started doing that really from about a month after I arrived because it just seemed like a wonderful thing to do and not easy for me. I grew up in Quebec, so I did speak some French, but of course, uh, Tibetan is a completely different language group altogether. So it wasn't easy. And spoken is more difficult. I think for me was more difficult for me than the reading and writing simply because Tibetan is a monosyllabic language. Most words are just one or two syllables. And so there's so many words that sound very, very similar that your air hearing it is difficult and your tongue uh, achieving that degree of subtlety of pronunciation that make the difference between lepa and lepa, for instance, uh, brain and penis, <laughs> leads for some humorful conversations. <laughs> 
in the tea shops when you're trying to practice your elementary Tibetan. So I would say my written grew first. Uh, my reading and writing grew faster than my speaking in early days. And I had the good luck, maybe 74 or 1975, something like that, that uh, a wonderful Lama came to Dharamsala to work in the uh, manuscript room, uh, Venerable Dobam Toku, very, very high Toku, and one of the great Lamas from Dargay Monastery. And I used to take walks around the library, Kora in Tibetan, we call the walk around, which is very popular for everyone living in in a Ganki, in a, but the little town where the Tibetan, where the Dalai Lama school was connected. And every evening, all the government workers and the wives and the kids would do like an hour of Kora of the library building, because inside the library building were many Buddhist scriptures and also statues and all of the Buddhist artworks that had been given to the Dalai Lama by escaping refugees. And so a lot of these ended up in either Tibetan library in Dharamsala or Tibet house in New Delhi. And Dobum Tuku was brought up from, uh, from Delhi, where he had been in the Tibet house cataloging, I think, their Tibetan manuscript room down there, which had been newly, newly established Tibetan house in Delhi, Tibet house in Delhi. And I met him at the Kora, and we, he would always chit-chat and very friendly, outgoing guy, a huge mountain of, his, of a man. He's very tall, like maybe six-something, six-four, or six-three, six-two-four, and probably 250 pounds of kampa muscle, one of those real kind of muscle guys. But as gentle, as gentle as like Yogi the bear. <laughs> and so he would always chit-chat to try and practice his English and then after maybe a year later, he said to me, oh, Glenn, it would be interesting. We should read some Tibetan text together. It might help you uh, with your study of Tibetan language and it might, might help me with my study of um, Buddhist terms in English. And so we, we uh, that informally like that. And I think the first thing we did was the long life prayer for the Dalai Lama. So that was the first thing I ever translated. And later I published it as a tiny little booklet like that could fit in your pocket because uh, often at any teaching the Dalai Lama gave, at the end of that teaching, that prayer, that little prayer, Tenshug in Tibetan, is called Tenshug, which means like staying firm. <laughs> Stay firm. And it's a very beautiful little prayer with, written by Ling Rinpoche and Trijan Rinpoche as sort of a joint composition. So they both sort of took turns passing it up and down and working out the meter and the poetry and all of that. So it started with that. And then also the Dalai Lama gave a Kala Chakra initiation. And I thought it would be nice to translate the little, they call six session guru yoga, which is a little practice. If you have the initiation, you should do something a little prayer to do six times a day. I don't know if prayer is the right word. The word in Tibetan is Lama Naljor, which means Tuntruk Lama Naljor, the six session guru yoga practice. Guru yoga, because you think of the initiation you have, the initiation is always connected to the five Buddha families, the five 
the so-called five Buddhas, your five skandhas transformed into five Buddhas, your five kleshas, your five delusions into the five dakinis, into the five wisdoms uh, of uh, five primordial awarenesses or wisdoms. And so it's something one does three times during the day and three times at night generally. And so I thought it'd be nice to translate that. And that had been written and given out at the Dalai Lama's Color Chakra Initiation in I think 74 or something like that. Very cute little text, but it was written by a famous Galugpa meditator called uh, um, Gankar Rinpoche, who in Tibet was, I think, the most famous during the 1940s and 1950s. Very, very famous Lama, almost as famous as Pabanka. And uh, he had done maybe 10 or 20 years of um, meditation retreat on on uh, Kala Chakra practice. And so the Dalai Lama, when he gave that Kala Chakra in Bagaya in 74, he had a little copy of that given out to all 350,000 people <laughs> who attended. <laughs> you can see the local little printing shop sort of gearing up as, you know, they had no idea how many people would come. It's like, will it be 5,000 or will it be a 10,000? It's like, and suddenly it's up to 50,000. What? We have to have 50,000 copies of that little text, but we've only printed five or 10,000. And oh, it's crossed 100,000. What? <laughs> 200,000. What? A quarter of a million. What? <laughs> Finally up to 350,000. You can see that little printing press in Gaia sort of running out and buying up all the paper they can get their hands on. I mean, it was a very short text printed in Tibetan style, maybe four sheets of paper or you know, probably uh, three inches, three or four inches one way and maybe six inches the other way. It's sort of one of those little texts that fits neatly into Tibetan's book of what they call Kadun, or a text for daily recitation. So that was the second thing we translated. And the first one with Dalai Lama's long life is very interesting because it takes one through the categories of all the spiritual, spiritual archetypes in Tantric Buddhism. So you first start out making requests to all the gurus and lineage masters, you know, please send down positive energy so Dalai Lama will live long and accomplish many great works and fulfill his destiny. And then you go to the Yidams, may all of the Mandala deities uh, send down their uh, positive energy of rain. And so I think the thing was called something like a rainfall of nectar or something like that, <laughs> or nectar. And then it goes into the three jeweled Buddha Dharma Sangha, then into Dakas and Dakinis, then into Dharmapalas. <laughs> so it sort of a, was an interesting text in that it was an introduction to all of the kind of spiritual heroes and heroines that play a role in Tantric Buddhism. So for me, that was a very, very interesting read. Because at that point in my life, I didn't know a lot about Tantra yet. We had mostly done Lamrim and Lojong and Tripta and maybe Bhattacharya Avatara and Gampopa's uh, Jewel Ornament of Liberation and maybe some Majamaka, something like that, and but a little bit of Tantra, but not any in-depth study of the language, certainly. So that was kind of my introduction. And both of those were written as verse works. So it also gave me a, a sort of an introduction to Tibetan poetry. 
And uh, Dumontuk was still alive. Uh, he retired as uh, left later after the Tibetan Library. He became the Dalai Lama's um, foreign secretary for a number of years. And so any Westerners wanting to visit the Dalai Lama, he would be the one who would sit in and listen in on the setup, the setup and like that. And if the Dalai Lama was going to any international conferences, this is mid-70s before the Dalai Lama was a worldwide house, household name. <laughs> he would prepare the materials for the Dalai Lama's visit to those places and so on. So while he was at the library, we read a bunch of those things with him and then started reading things with other other Tibetan lamas. Then the Dalai Lama, when Dobom Toko moved up with uh, into the Dalai, Dalai Lama's residence, uh, that side of town, to uh, work as Dalai Lama's uh, foreign secretary, maybe once or twice a week he would invite me up to translate something that... Uh, the Dalai Lama wanted translated for some reason or another. And that led me to sort of having a, a, a connection with the Tibetan Library and their translation bureau. So then at that time, I think Sepak Rigzin, a very wonderful monk from Senyi Labtra, maybe late 70s, late 70s, was switched to the Tibetan Library. And I was asked to work with him on bigger projects that the Dalai Lama would send down that he wanted translating, translated. And then by the late 70s, maybe 78, 79, then Dobum Toku was sent to Delhi. So he was sort of out of my life as a daily phenomena or a weekly phenomena. I would, of course, spend time with him when I went to Delhi and he would come to Dharamsala from time to time for Dalai Lama events or Ling Rinpoche events. But uh, my life went in different ways. And I decided at that point that there was nothing of any significance on any early Dalai Lama in English. And even this Dalai Lama, just one little text, opening of the wisdom eye, that had been written for Thai monks, Thailand monks, and was so therefore a you know, Thai Buddhism and monastic Buddhism is very conservative and self-critical. And everyone's, because Vinaya is really talking about uh, discipline or morality. So it's not a very interesting read outside of <laughs> being a kind of a reasonably well-educated Theravadan monk. It was really written by the Dalai Lama in Tibetan for the Theravadans to show that Tibetan Buddhism is basically just Buddhism with a you know, similar to Thai Buddhism or Sri Lanka Buddhism or Burmese Buddhism. Because at those days, uh, basically monks of different, different traditions knew almost nothing about each other. You know, language uh, barriers and restrictions on travel because of, well, the British occupation of India, colonization, and, and Islam, <laughs> all these kind of barriers. So then nobody knew much about each other. So then I got to know, translating with the Dalai Lama's uh, little text on uh, Vinaya, got to know all the Vinaya terms. But then I decided I wanted to really bring out something about the Dalai Lamas, because especially the first seven Dalai Lamas had been very great writers and very great teachers, and really international celebrities, you could say. You know, they were sort of 
like the first Dalai Lama became, although he was a semi-orphan from a very poor family, became the most popular teacher in all of Central Asia. Although, and especially Western Tibet, Ladakh, Lahul, Spiti, Kanor, the Kailash area, and Southwest Tibet, Shigatse, and then, of course, up in Central Tibet. <coughs> so he, and the second continued that, the third continued that, fourth, fifth, and up to the seventh, they had all been quite prolific writers and very, very popular teachers. One can easily say, I think, singularly popular teacher in all of Central Asia. At least five of those first seven were like that. The fourth and the sixth, not so popular because they didn't live so long. The fourth was murdered by the Karma Kargyupas uh, because of a civil war in Mongolia that spread over into Tibet and because he had Mongol ancestry, the Karmakargyupas, who were at one side of that civil war, basically just assassinated him. And the six ran into trouble for other reasons, uh, mostly because he didn't want to be a monk and uh, developed too much enthusiasm for uh, the libertine lifestyle. <laughs> Uh, fell in love with too many ladies at the at the same time, and at the same time as this was happening, there were other kind of big political events swirling around Central Asia that that aspect of his life sort of took him, uh, made him uh, a sort of a scapegoat, I guess you could say, for some of the events. But otherwise, the first, second, third, fifth, seventh Dalai Lama, those five were very, very great writers. And uh, I was very concerned that nothing by any of them really was in English. Even their biographies, there was like just a, a paragraph or two on each one and often just misstated. Someone said something back in 1880 and that remained what the Oxford and Cambridge professors said thereafter. And you even have, you know, people like Snellgrove and these are very great professors completely just repeating the stuff, never looking to primary literature to see what's actually the case. And so then uh, my work became more interesting in that uh, I would get complete collected works of a different Dalai Lama and then kind of try and find a complete, you know, these weren't available to us to buy or like that at that time, but try and get access to one and study it and go through and see what was in it and see what in it I thought would be relevant to the modern educated reader. So I thought I should do a book called something like Buddhism for the Educated Man, and then put brackets and women and woman. <laughs> now, a translation, of course, when you go from one culture to another, there's a big jump with language. And... Uh, cultural media, the whole platform and the philosophy and the emotion of language and all that. I had the advantage that I wasn't an academic, uh, you know, in a Western sense. I wasn't a university professor. I didn't have to worry about grants from anyone. I didn't have to worry about my students getting, you know, or getting grants or being refused grants because someone did or didn't like the way I worked or what I did or how I translated. So Bob Thurman, a wonderful, wonderful professor from Columbia University, wants to me, Glenn, you're so lucky. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> of 
for us, we have to be so careful because if we develop any enemies, they can just try and harm us and harm our students for years to follow. <laughs> and uh, when, when translating, I think my two favorite forms of contemporary Western literature was the New York New Yorker, a wonderful New York magazine written very cleverly, but very simply and understatedly, and Punch magazine. So if I would say, where, what kind of uh, language platform do I think works best for Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, I would say the New, York, New Yorker and Punch magazine. If you want to get the words I use in English for Buddhist words, <laughs> uh, buy a hundred uh, old copies of Punch magazine. <laughs> Because they're written in a very simple, clear, lucid style, while at the same time not sacrificing depth or precision. And it's hard to do that. And uh, another book that really influenced my writing style was a book that I read back in the late 70s or early 80s called Yes Words and No Words. That's just the title of the book, Yes Words and No Words. And it went into how... English never says what it says. Every word in English has a kind of a, an emotional tone to it, which doesn't really just mean what it says. And so that's the case with almost every single word in English. There's a kind of a non, it's a very emotional language in English. And it's not, that's why I think you know, often medicine has to use their own language. Psychology has to develop its own language. And you know, math or any of the sciences, they have to develop their own language. They can't use ordinary language. They have to try to develop something which is not so emotionally charged. But if you're writing for the general public, that emotional charging of words is something that becomes very relevant to the pleasure and to the pleasure of the read. And I think to the musical nature of the read, the natural kind of resonance, you would say. So those were my three favorites. Then of course, to get a grasp on humorful grammar, my favorite was Winston Churchill's book on proper English usage. Because <laughs> I think he was the first Brit to look at English not as English, but as an international language. You know, as a young man, he spent almost as much time out of England as he did in England. And so he really had a much deeper sense of English, not just as something to be spoken on the streets of London or published in the Times of London, but as a kind of a, the, what was becoming a universal international language of planet Earth. And so for me, his approach really was so much better than, say, Fowler's correct English language or anything written by the other uh, linguist academics. And, of course, he always brought such humor to what he was saying to make his point. <laughs> but I think finding, finding material that 
in my mind, sort of showed something on the character of each Dalai Lama was important. And then, of course, translating something from their biographies and then doing a study of their life and times and sort of putting it together as something based on tradition, but at the same time steps into the modern international world. So I tried to do with that with all my books on the early Dalai Lamas that obviously some will succeed more than others, and some of those Dalai Lamas are more fun than other Dalai Lamas, at least in terms of what we can learn from them through literary sources today, which is very different than if you were walking with them down a mountain path in Tibet uh, 500 years ago or 600 years ago. That's fascinating. Let's pick up on a few of those points. You mentioned there that the, your writing and reading progressed at a faster rate than your spoken Tibetan. It's often said that there is a noticeable difference between classical uh, Tibetan and colloquial or spoken, generally spoken Tibetan. Right. And I remember you telling me on one occasion that you received some advice that dramatically improved your uh, spoken Tibetan. Do you, do you remember what I'm referring to? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the written Tibetan, you know, Tibetans often they call it Chuke, Dharma language. And I don't know if they use that much in uh, Tibet. I think in Tibet they probably said Puyig or something like that like Tibetan uh, scripting or Tibetan script or Tibetan scripture. But uh, uh, Chukya has become a more popular term because, of course, Tibetan texts, written texts, are also the main spiritual form in Bhutan and in northern Nepal and in Ladakh, Mongolia, East Russia, West China, and so on. So th that is, you could say, a kind of a hybrid language created by the great translators in the 7th and 8th centuries and refined until about the 11th or 12th century as the roughly, I think, 5,000 texts were translated from Indian Sanskrit into Tibetan to become part of the Kanjur and Tenjur. Many of those are very short texts, of course, but and nonetheless, they get their own title and <laughs> what have you with the different sutras and tantras of the Buddha and the Kanjur, and then the Tengyur, the different works by the different Indian masters from Nagarjuna and so on down through the centuries. And then the Tibetan commentaries, or the commentaries by the, they're often known in Tibet as the later masters, which means Tibet or Bhutan or Nepal or Mongolia. So that kind of written language, so when we call it Dharma language, it's more meaningful, I think, than the term that used to be used prior to the internationalization of Tibetan refugee culture <laughs> since 1950 and the Chinese invasion. It might be instructive to uh, mention a little bit about those translation periods and, and how it was that the, the Tibetan language came to be so unusual. Yes, it's hard to know really exactly the details of what truly happened because in Tibetan history from that period is written by court historians or stenographers or <laughs> uh, archivists or whatever one wants to term them. So one gets a kind of a view which is liked, approved, and paid for by the king, <laughs> kings. 
but Tibetans know that period of the 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 period of the three Dharma kings, the three great kings. And uh, Tibet came into existence as a country something like 400 BC, when uh, Nyatri Zambo, the the Palanquin-born king, <laughs> uh, united two or three hundred countries of Central Asia under his rule. So those are often known as the kings of the Yarlung Valley. Now, later Tibetans say that he was a descendant of Buddha Shakyamuni's family. He was a Shakya. That at the time of the Indian Wars and the destruction of the Shakya clan on the borders of Nepal and India, modern-day Lumbini and Kapilavastu, which is only 25 miles from Lumbini in southwest Nepal, three miles from the Indian border, modern Indian border, that uh, a lot of the armies during that civil war, one of them was pushed north and crossed over into Tibet and dropped into the Yarlung Valley. And because he looked a little bit weird <laughs> and was dressed weird compared to how you know, he's dressed like Indian style and the Indian Tibetans were dressed Tibetan style. So when they asked him where he came from, he didn't have a clue what they said, so he went like this. Indians, if you ask them something they don't know, they go like, it's kind of a, even today, it's a kind of a standard. So they thought, oh, he's pointing to the heavens. That means he is down from the heavens and he's come here to help us out, get things together. So they picked him up on their shoulders, carried him into town and pronounced him their king. <laughs> now, you know, Western historians are a little bit dubious about that. They say, oh yeah, that's just, Tibetan Buddhist monk scholars trying to connect ancient Tibet to India and to the Buddha. Who knows? Might be. <laughs> it said he had webbed feet, and the Buddha also had webbed feet, like kind of big skin between your toes compared to the sort of long, scrawny toes that most Central Asians have. They sort of had these sort of beautiful sort of duck, duck feet. <laughs> But anyway, from that time on, Tibet had some sort of strong connection with India, at least as far as the later Tibetan historians go. And uh, from that time on, of course, it was also always uh, over that period, there was trade to get from central Tibet down to Nepal and into India. So not a big trip. The caravans were going up back and forth across the so-called Silk Roads and Spice Roads, all those, uh, all those centuries. But in uh, about 630 or so, I think it's the 33rd king of Tibet. So, some, you know, five, six, well, 630 or so is usually the date given. We're not sure of the exact date because Tibetan sex century system, the 60-year cycle, wasn't given a number until 1054. So before that, that's just like the year of the dog or the year of the hare. So, <laughs> but uh, most people think roughly 630 or so. And that king um, had five wives and the fourth was a Chinese wife who was a Buddhist and the fifth was a Nepali princess, also a Buddhist. And he decided that um, Buddhism would be um, on a, 
a unifying quality a unifying quality in 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 the new kingdom he had established so he he basically extended the tibetan borders all the way down to modern day uh, xian in china you know the cave of the terracotta terracotta warriors and all that his kingdom went all the way down there he conquered much of uh, xinjiang or turkestan including all the way up through khotan and that down almost to the Kathmandu Valley, all of northern Tibet, northern Nepal, the western Himalayas like Ladakh, Lahul, Spiti, all the way down to Kashmir and so on. So he basically landwise expanded the Tibetan kingdom or the Tibetan empire, whatever you want to call it, to become the largest continuous land empire from that time until Genghis Khan came along 600 years later. But he seems to have been very impressed by his two Buddhist wives, and they both married him on the condition that he would build them a nice temple. So for the Nepali wife, he built uh, Jokong in central Tibet, which until today is the most popular temple uh, in all of Central Asia, the most holy temple, you could say. And he built the Ramoche for the Chinese princess. Kind of int- And so then uh, they also were allowed to bring their own you know, equip those temples with the kind of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas they wished and to bring in a quorum of monks to sort of teach them, teach the kids and serve them. So it seems Sung Sangampo became very deeply moved by them and then decided to make Buddhism the national religion, the official national religion. So Buddhism had certainly been in Tibet for many hundreds of years before that, although from his time on, Historians weren't allowed to write very much about that. <laughs> All the credit is given to him. But because they're so close to Nepal, so close to India, they had trade for all those centuries, it's certain that there was lots of Buddhism there before. In fact, people like Snellgrove, great British professor, claim that the bun of Sung Gompo's time was really Buddhism from Western India, Northwest India, Kashmir, Afghanistan, the East Persian Empire side of the Buddhist Buddhist world. And then he sent 25 scholars to India to develop a script based on Sanskrit and a tr- translation approach that would best suit the translation of Buddhist Sanskrit from India into Tibetan. And from that time on, the kings of Tibet uh, sponsored all of the translation work and the building work. And Sung Sangampa himself is said to have built 112, 108, 108, I think it is, uh, great temples around his empire. And so when we look at where those temples are, 12 of them were called the inner circle, and the others were the outer circle. And in, so we could say that's kind of inner Tibet and outer Tibet in his mind. What's the most... Uh, fertile ground of his ancient Yarlung Valley empire and now what is the newly acquired and dominated territories and all of those had to build up those temples and they had to from that time on take Tibetan language as their written language and as their official Dharma language 
And for that reason, Ladakh until today, which was conquered by Sung Seng Gompo, still uses the Tibetan script in all their temples. So does Bhutan, even though Bhutanese don't like to call it the Tibetan script because they think China might get some idea and say, oh, if you're using the Tibetan script, you're really part of Tibet, so you're really part of us. Well, certainly Bhutan was part of Tibet at that time and remained so for quite a few centuries. But uh, that doesn't mean China has any claim to it. <laughs> So, and uh, then uh, they developed very precise dictionaries. So if you wanted to get on the king's uh, payroll list or stipend list, you used that dictionary for your terms. And so that continued from about 630 till about 1000 for 350 years, 375 years, 400 years perhaps. And then out of Western Tibet, uh, came Rinchen Zongbo, Lochen Rinchen Zongbo is often called, who thought after almost four centuries of immersion in uh, Buddhism, we should revise some of these translation terminology. And he created new dictionaries and new grammar rules for translation. So often we say the Nyingma in Tibetan is actually known as uh, the Ngargyur, the earlier translation period, and the, the schools forming in the 11th century following Rinchen Zobo is Chigyur, the later translation period. So the Nyingmas really just refer to those movements that developed using the old dictionaries of Sangsen Gampo's period and up Tri Sangdutsen and Tri Rapachan and so on. And from the then after the death of Tri Rapa Chen and Lang Dharma and the assassination of Lang Dharma, Tibet broke into a number of kingdoms uh, ruled by various sons of Lang Dharma. And there was sort of a scattering of the energies and royal patronage kind of finished for translators. So that's when Rinchen Zangpo pops up and Nobody's paying him to say, use any particular words. He can translate how he likes. He, like me, can look to the New Yorker and Punch magazine as his gurus in the linguistic expression and follow Sir Winston Churchill's correct English usage <laughs> for his guidelines to punctuation. <laughs> and so he starts the new schools. And so... For that reason, today, Nyingma Bun still have all the terminologies from those old Sangsangampa period dictionaries and grammar and uh, new schools, Kargyu and Kadampa, Sakya, Ralukpa, Shijapa, and so on. And of course, Engalukpa becomes a fusion of all those new schools or a union of the best of those schools, you could say. So in Dharma language, you kind of have those two sides. Now, it's not that Rinchen Zambo redid everything. He kept 75% of the terminology, maybe even more. So you still have much of the same thing being said for Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and for, you know, Four Noble Truths and the 12 Links of Dependent Origination, these general kind of stuff. But uh, lots of other terms come in. And through his revisions and, of course, then uh, reworking the translations to fit them. So that's often called the Renaissance period. 
at that time, Marpa Lotsua sort of uh, re revi revising many of the translations from, say, Guya Samaja and all this. Often he's known as Marpa Lotsua, the Trent Marpa, the translator, because he saw a part, large part of his work not just being as teaching Milarepa and his disciples, but as revising the actual literary foundation of the transmission of Dharma. Now, when we say Dharma, we talk about two, Lung Pei Chu and Tuk Pei Chu, the Dharma which is passed in words, and Tuk Pei Chu, the Dharma of realization. So one depends on words, and that comes down to writing as well, and the other depends on practice and meditation. So he put a great emphasis, and Atisha, of course, came to Tibet, and he revised many, spent a lot of time in Semyam Monastery, and there revised a lot of the uh, translations. And uh, then the early Sakya Lamas, of course, were largely translators. I mean, that's really what they saw themselves as, were translators and revisers. People like Bari Lotsawa, one of the early great Sakya translator Lamas. And so the script sort of developed in those two ways, the old, the old way. Um, you know, they like to say it, the ancient ones. Um, if we want to be critical, we can say the primitives. <laughs> the primitive translation method. I think it's a little bit like if we look at translations today of Buddhism in England, and we look at them in the old days, in the old days, uh, in the 1800s, a lot of Buddhist texts were translated by Christian missionaries. So they're translated using really a lot of Christian terminology. You know, negative karma is translated as sin, just for an example. Whereas the Christian meaning of sin, original sin, there's no equivalent to that in Buddhism. The word really doesn't work. But because for the Christians, that was they were doing the translation, so that's what came to mind when they translated that word. In the same way, the early translators are working exclusively from a linguistic base that is connected to much of the more ancient spiritual threads of Central Asia. And so they're looking at different words. Uh, their their words from their own source traditions, their own cultural tra traditions. So there's very, well, actually we have very little from those early Nyingma writings, other than the uh, other than what's in the the Nyingma Kenjur and Tenjur. In other words, other than in translated forms, we I don't think there's any written commentaries from those periods that can be said to be authentically from those periods. I mean, scientifically from those periods. They're really revised by Terma tradition, the revelatory, revelation tradition, where there, they're kind of totally re-expressed in a modern idiom. And that starts in the 1200s, basically. It's not that old. It starts 600 years later. And... Uh, so outside of that, the spoken language in Tibet, one reason why it was hard for me to learn it, I think, was uh, living in Dharamsala. Uh, Tibet had a lot of dialects. I'm sure when uh, you know you grew up in England, 
the way in the 1930s or 1940s someone from Devonshire would talk or someone from Glasgow or someone from Wales or someone from East London or West London. Very different ways of pronouncing words. So English being based on German, being an Indo-Germanic language group, words have a lot of syllables in them. So you can sort of navigate through them a little bit just by the number of symbols and the general pronunciation of vowels and consonants. But if each word was just like a two or three sounds, and most Tibetan words are either one or two syllables, then it becomes much more difficult to follow. And so the Tibetans say the way it's written in Ladakh or Kamarando or Mongolia is all the same. But the way it's pronounced becomes quite difficult, different. So I think people who joined the monasteries in South India and were put in a particular Kamsen or particular department, Tibetan departments were often regional based. Like if you were from a particular area, you had a hereditary right to go in that department of Gendan, Drepung, or Sera, or Tashilumpo. So when you went there, everyone was talking your dialect. It was all your homeboys, you could say, your homies. <laughs> so people who learned in those monasteries learned a very smooth, fluid form of Tibetan, because uh, everyone, most of the people they speak to are in their Kamsan and they're using a similar dialect. In Darmsla, we had the problem that everyone you walk by, talk to on a daily basis is from a different different part of the country, so it has a different dialect. So you asked about, uh, yeah, one of my lamas gave me advice on how to learn. The first of those was Namgyal Trasen Kembo Kinzer Rinpoche, the great abbot of Dalai Lama's monastery. He was called Kenzar at the time, meaning ex officio or retired. He has, had become very old. And uh, I, when I was going to Senyi Labdra, the Tibetan debate monastery, in the late 70s, I think 77 or 78 or something. Uh, I had to walk up and down three miles straight up and down that hill every day, twice. And once he no I noticed him, his face out the window and he's, he's sort of doing a sadhana or some practice for someone. And he gives me a big smile. And then he notices me again the next day and the next day. So then he calls me in for a cup of tea. And the situation was him as uh, he, had, he had a very weak heart, but was considered one of what Dalai Lama designates as a kind of a living national treasure. So he was asked not to teach anyone publicly, but just to do blessings and receive people and stuff like that. So he invited me in for a cup of tea and uh, then was really having a lot of fun chit-chatting with a foreigner. I think I might have been one of the first he ever spoke to. And then he said, well, I think once or twice a week, you seem to know all the best gossip of anyone around Amsterdam. So once or twice a week, none of my students will tell me any of their gossip, interesting gossip. So I think you should drop in and drink tea with me and it'll be good for you to practice your Tibetan and be fun for me to pick up on the local gossip. <laughs> And uh, so, that, and then he said, oh, and to improve your Tibetan, uh, here's my general instruction. Don't ever pass a Tibetan on the street without stopping and talking to them. And don't let them leave until you make them laugh. <laughs> he says, because once you can make someone laugh in Tibetan, 
that means your Tibetan will start getting very smooth. And then uh, they will always be happy to see you and want to stop and chit chat and see what you're going to say to amuse them. Tibetans love laughter. That was his advice. But about maybe two or three years earlier than that, uh, with Dobum Toku, when I was going up once a week to help him uh, read through stuff, the Dalai Lama, in those days, the Dalai Lama wasn't a celebrity, uh, celebrity the way he became after a Nobel Peace Prize. So if he was going to go to a conference, often the organizers would want a written paper that he would present, much like an academic or a professor would. And it would be published in the journal and given out to everyone when you arrive. So, of course, the Dalai Lama would never actually read those papers at it. He would always just say, you've all got my paper in the journal, so I'll just make a few informal remarks of things I wanted to talk about. But nonetheless, he had to have those things printed and done. And so when I would go up to work with Dobum, sometimes I would just be ushered in. You had to go. In those days, you had the, the you know, access to the Dalai Lama's uh, Putrang was controlled by the Indian government and a group of about, I think it was 24 policemen, you know, but about half a dozen of them working in the front gate, sort of registering who comes and goes and screening to see you're not bringing in contraband and stuff like that. And uh, so sometimes I get there and he say, well, you know, the Dobin says he can't see you till like another hour because he could at any time, if the Dalai Lama has a meeting with a Westerner, just be called in just to sit there for the next hour, hour and a half. So the Dobum said, I tell you what we'll do is uh, right down this, just below the entrance to the Dalai Lama's temple, there's a grandma has a little um, tavern with homemade beer, barley beer, chung. And so I think what you should do before you come if you have to wait, just go down there, and then when it's time to go, I'll just phone my attendant and have him bring you up. And after you leave, you should stop off there and have a bottle of chung with the locals. And uh, having uh, that'll loosen your tongue a little bit and get you a little more fluid on your pronunciation. So it was really Dobum who got me into that fluidity, but then it was Namgyal Kensar who gave that wonderful advice don't pass anyone on the street without talking to them. And, don't let them leave until you make them laugh. <laughs> Do you remember any Tibetan language jokes? Well, I think, you know, it's not that Tibetans tell jokes as such. They have a kind of a spontaneous, playful humor. You know, Tibetans just don't sit down and tell jokes like, say, stand-up comedians do in the West or something like that. Or There's no books of Tibetan jokes as such. There's more of just kind of a playfulness in the way you talk, which makes guys giggle and men break out in loud guffaws of laughter. <laughs> but just kind of whatever comes up, just kind of a playfulness with it, bringing out some kind of humorful aspect of it. I mean, and Tibetans really, uh, I would say also, with both uh, monks and lay people, I would say sexual humor is their favorite just as it is with us in the West. And we sometimes think, you know, like what Tibetan sexuality is a very playful thing. It's not like in the West uh, with Christianity where something happened in the Garden of Eden with an apple and maybe a snake and then some fig leaves. And it's all very confusing why God doesn't like people to have sex. 
And then with the Catholic Church, sex is sort of a necessary evil that has to be consecrated by the church in order for you to have children that are legitimate and stuff like that. So it's always regarded as a kind of a pro, solely a procreation aspect. The, the fun side of sex is pretty much overlooked in Christianity until, you know, really until uh, uh, Victoria's son, Edward, who thought this is a little silly <laughs> and started dating Lily Lantry <laughs> and became a ladies' man. <laughs> but they, they love any kind of sexual humor, sort of flirtatious talk and stuff like that. And, and they're not like terribly, what would you call, lascivious? Is that the right word? Or, uh, or you know, there's not like they're, they're really uh, sexually that wild outside of their ordinary life. But for them, it's kind of a, there's something comical about sex. There's something just innately funny about it. And anything you say to a Tibetan that's got any kind of a sexual innuendo will immediately start every, the girls will start giggling shyly and the guys will start guffawing loudly with laughter. And I think that's true, certainly true with monks. When I was in, uh, I think I mentioned to you one time that I think in 91, I was on a teaching tour of Spain when I got to Madrid, there was a monk, Geshe I had known in India, who had been there for six months, and the only person in town who spoke any Tibetan was his translator, a young monk, and they never chit-chat with one another. So when I got there, he just wanted to, like, wake me at six in the morning and talk straight until ten at night, just to get all of his talking done, because he knew once I left, that was it, there'd be no more chit-chatting for another six months or something. And uh, I, after a couple of days, I said to him, well, Geshe-la, I have to tell you, uh, when it comes, and he was doing like a lot of monastic stories and stuff like that. I said, when it comes to monasteries, monastic stories and Tibetan cultural stuff, the only thing I really like are the Agudumpa stories, which are the, the sex joke. All Every Tibetan sex joke is told through an Agudumpa story. Agudumpa literally means Agu is uncle and Tumba teacher. And the other fighting monk. So I said, those are the two aspects of monastic life I'm interested in. Otherwise, I don't really have much interest in uh, those kind of stories. And he said, well, you're in very good luck because I joined the monastery when I was eight and I became a dub-dub, a fighting monk, till I was 20. And uh, at 23, I decided I should I should uh, actually start studying some dharma. So I did and became a cachet. <laughs> He said, but all the all the dub-dubs know all the best Agudumpa stories. <laughs> so for the next two weeks, from morning until night, he was just always telling me lots of interesting dub-dub stories and Agudumpa stories. I'm curious about your process when it comes to approaching a translation, a new translation, say, a new project, both in terms of the research involved as well as the translation process itself. And I'm also curious if... Um, you can point to any examples of either linguistic choices you made or material selection that you made um, that you feel might have been more limited had you been an officially an academic. Well, you know, in my early time, like say, we're friends with Dobum Toku or with Sepak Rigsanla, 
there's another one at the library, Losang Dawa, who was a Geshe Darge's translator and later went to New Zealand with Geshe Darge when Dalai Lama sent Geshe Darge to New Zealand. And with, but anyway, with Dobam, he would say, I would like to translate this or that, or why don't we do this or that? And it would be stuff that he wanted to read through to get a, a grip on the language and to be able to discuss meanings of terms. Like he didn't trust dictionaries in English, most of which had been made by traveling missionaries in olden days or had been made by peoples who weren't really trained in the tradition. They basically were just academics from Oxford or Cambridge or wherever. And uh, so he really wanted to look at the deeper meanings of these words. So in the early days with, uh, with him, for about the first two or three years, probably, of anything I did, it was always sitting, just reading word by word. Now, at that time, already maybe five, three or four years before that, Geshe Dargi in the Tibetan library decided to teach us two texts uh, as not only uh, sort of um, our Dharma teaching, but also as kind of uh, Dharma language instruction teaching. And the first of those was Gompopo's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, one of the early Lamrim texts in the Tibetan world I mean, the first Lamrim text in Tibet is um, Atisha's own Bodhipata Pradipam, or Lamp on the Path to Enlightenment, and his auto-commentary. But these were both written in Sanskrit and translated into Tibetan, so they're slightly cumbersome, you could say. Whereas uh, Gompopa, although someone did something after that called, before Gompopa, called Tenrim, which is a little bit the same, uh, but not as strictly so. So Gampopa sort of did the first one, which is like a Lamrim commentary, you could say. And it's listed there as one of the 20 great Lamrim texts in, in Tibetan history, but it's one of the early ones. So Geshe-la taught that to us over a period of a year, just teaching it line by line, syllable by syllable. And some of us found that very wonderful. And others, you know, some people found it a little tedious and a little slow. <laughs> So Geshe Darge taught at least twice every day. So one of his was a kind of a general teaching for newcomers, you could say, a kind of an introductory class that the Dalai Lama had requested him to do, which would kind of go through Tibetan Lamrim style meditation from A to Z, uh, just based on his own choice of what, how he wanted to do it and who showed up. That usually had 40, 50 people attending it. And it was uh, usually in the early days, uh, Sharpa Toku translated, sometimes Kamlang Toku. Later, they both moved to America, so they were replaced by a couple of other translators, I guess, in 75 or something like that. And uh, so that was kind of my first immersion. And the good thing about that was it already existed in English, translated by Herbert Gunther, a Canadian-German a German who had become a Canadian who was living in Canada, teaching in the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, <laughs> the, the grasslands of north of Nebraska. <laughs> and he was a wonderful academic, actually. And also he knew Dharma well. He wasn't just uh, like a, an Oxford-style academic who 
basically just studies it the way you'd study ants in Africa or um, varieties of kangaroos in Australia. He went to the India and studied very well with peoples who really knew the tradition very well, rather than just study with other professors who weren't practitioners. So it had that advantage that he really had a good feel for it. Because he was German and English wasn't his first language, of course, his translations are eccentric and Germans are very existential and they really get carried away. So each one of his books, he uses completely different terminology for the same Tibetan word. So then if after five years later, when I noticed that to know what he was talking about, if I was going to read one of his translations, I'd have to pull out the Tibetan and read it beside it to have a clue what he was talking about. But uh, that first one, uh, Gompopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, he had been somewhat, you could say, less eccentric. <laughs> and he'd taken something of a normal sanity, normal reasoning approach to writing and to the translation of the words. But then as we went through them with Geshe Dargi, and he would discuss each one of those very clearly, and then Sharpa Tulku would often say what he thought about the English word and other words, which would work very well. Now, Sharpa Tulku had come out of Tibet in 1959 with uh, Geshe Zopa. And then sometime in the 60s had been, he and Kemlung had both been sent to America with Geshe Zopa when Geshe Wangel in Washington, New Jersey, requested uh, Lama to, to be sent. So Dalai Lama sent the two young Tukus with him to learn English and be, prepare themselves to become translators and to come back and translate. So they both had sort of good colloquial English, Sharpa's better than Kamlung's, and both were extremely intelligent. And Sharpa just had this, one, has a, had and has this wonderful articulate processing, I guess. <laughs> well, a wonderful way of looking at words and uh, ideas and uh, unpacking them in a very articulate way and a very picture, very picture perfect way, I would say. So that for me was very helpful. And later we studied the Bodhicharya Avatara in the same way, using a, a commentary from the Sakya school, Tomizompo. And so going through Shantideva's Bodhicharyavatara over a period of a year or so, again, syllable by syllable, following the commentary and all of that, and getting a sense of how original translation from Sanskrit, together with commentaries to translations, are done. So that was very interesting, I would say, very revealing, because... When often when a translator would translate a book into Tibetan, they would write a little auto-commentary to their translation, especially if it's a verse work, because verse work, you have to sort of bend things to fit the, the language and the music and all the rest, and especially verse work. If you're trying to fit poetry, you know, four, nine-syllable sentences, or per verse <laughs> for a thousand verses like the Bodhicharya Avatar and you take the Sanskrit and nine syllables to a line and four lines to a verse and you do that a thousand times over, you have to bend the translation and bend the 
tapering of it to capture anything of the poetry. And of course, that always becomes a big issue in English, because uh, how do you, how do you, the compromise between meaning and music, I guess you would say, and meaning and the literal, like just an example of, you know, the, the invocation of Sankapa in the Lagyama, and in Lagigungi Tukana from the heart of the Lord of Tushita's hundred Buddhas on a yoga, on a billowing yogurt cloud, fluffy yogurt cloud. Yogurt is not a poetic word in English. <laughs> and so that those kind of issues come up with almost every verse on one or two issues. And then sometimes in the Sanskrit, they'll throw in something just to, for the musical value or the rhythm or the tempo, alliteration or euphony or whatever, and it doesn't work in Tibetan. So often in the commentaries, the auto commentaries written by the translators, they'd mention here, I thought, well, I say, on a billowing yogurt-like cloud. Most Americans in those days didn't know what yogurt was. I mean, it's become a fashion in recent decades, but <laughs> I think until 1980, almost no American, if you weren't from Eastern Europe, you didn't know what yogurt was. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I never saw yogurt in my life till I was in my 20s. Never even knew it existed. <laughs> but the word isn't musical, yogurt. No. <laughs> Is that yogurt or migurt? <laughs> yeah, so those aspects, of course, come up. But in terms of uh, stuff I would do, with the early translations, at that time, you know, as, as I mentioned, Dalai Lama, until he got Nobel Peace Prize, was kind of a reasonably accessible person. He wasn't, like after the Nobel Peace Prize, his schedule multiplied 10 times over. Particularly 70s, it was quite laid back in early 80s, quite laid back. If he was in town and you had a question, I mean, obviously you couldn't take advantage, but Tibetans and Tibetan lamas love writing. They love translation. They love books. It's probably their deepest passion in life. And so if I would get, a, say, a collective works of the first Dalai Lama and I would go through it, then I'd make a list of the things I wanted to include and whatever biographical stuff I wanted to use as a basis for study of his life. Then I was allowed to send that list to Dalai Lama and ask if there's anything he thought shouldn't go in that I had on the list or something that he thought should go in that wasn't on the list. And he allowed me to do that for the first Dalai Lama, the second Dalai Lama, the seventh Dalai Lama, like that. And uh, the third Dalai Lama, anyway, I, I did also did it with third Dalai Lama, but mostly with him, I used his famous Lam Rim text, The Essence of Refined Gold, which, by the way, is my worst translation of anything I've ever done, because it was the very first I did. And... Uh, I didn't really have time to go through it and polish it and all of that. And but later, by the time it was republished as a second and a third and fourth edition, I just said, what the heck, people like it the way it is. And, <laughs> uh, 
where I've got it wrong, perhaps it's even better than the way the Dalai Lama put it, the third Dalai Lama himself got it, so who knows? <laughs> I've, I've never been that reverential, I would say. And I think that's uh, partially because of um, one of my early gurus, Kevji, uh, you know, the guy, Gishin Gawandarge, who was the teacher, main teacher at the library, appointed by the Dalai Lama to tutor us foreigners. And, uh, you know, when I went to see him one time, he asked, you know, what do I do with my life and better other than study Dharma? And I said, well, I love writing and I write articles for papers and magazines and that's how I support myself here by uh, writing things. And he said, well, you should look at translating some Dharma literature because in English, we don't have a single book on anything about Galugpa Dharma. And at that time, there wasn't. I mean, uh, Evans Wentz books were out there, but they were all, the Evans Wentz books were all uh, Kargyu Nyingma because uh, they were translated by Kazaisandup, uh, Karma Kargyu Lama, who lived in Sikkim. And he sort of, he was a school teacher. He wasn't a practitioner, actually, but he was a monk, a little bit of a practitioner, but, and he wasn't a great scholar nor a practitioner. And Evans Wentz, of course, knew no Tibetan. So often people say translated by Kazai Dawasandup and Evans Wentz, or you'll know, say Evans Wentz, a translator. He never studied Tibetan. He just met Kazai Dawasandup and l fell in love with his translation of Tibetan Book of the Dead and offered to try to edit it into publishable form and get it published by Oxford University, which he did. And then uh, did the same with Milarepa's life. So I guess those were his first two books. Then Kantdawa Sendup died. And uh, he inherited uh, the sort of cash of other translations he had done in draft form. So those become less accurate, you could say, because he couldn't check them over with anyone. In fact, he reads them over with a Hindu Swami in Almora. He had sort of leased a piece of land up in Almora and uh, took it over. And Lit was living up there and there was a Swami living up above him who knew nothing about Tibet. And the Swami very, you know, out and out says, you know, I don't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, so if I'm going to say what I think this means, I can just tell you what it would mean to me reading in English a book connected on Indian culture, but not my lineage, so I don't really know exactly, but this is what it would mean to me if I were to take an educated guess. So those later books by him are kind of a little bit off, like um, Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, and Book of the Great Liberation and so forth, because he wasn't able to check anything with Dawasandup. But uh, nothing in there is of a Galugpa from our school. It's all sort of just scattering of what Dawasandup had in his own library and what he thought was fun to translate and might make for interesting reading. And it's all good stuff. I mean, I've read all four of those books two or three times each, <laughs> not, not grumbling about them. But uh, Dargi said, you know, nothing from our school is in English, so why don't you look into that and think about doing that? And then when I thought, okay, if I'm going to do that, then... Uh, I'd, you know, really liked the Dalai Lama a lot and had translated a lot of his stuff uh, just with Dobum Toku and for the private office. And then when I was working with Setop, Sepak Rigsen down at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives, uh, 
And Sepak, by the way, since then has moved to Atlanta and now teaches Tibetan language in Emory University, which is very wonderful. Very, very brilliant, brilliant man. At that time, he was a monk. And he, he, after uh, leaving Senyi Labdra, he stayed a monk for a few years, but then one, one time decided women are just too beautiful. <laughs> and the perks of being a monk, unless you're living in a monastery, aren't as good as the perks of having a wife if you're not in a monastery. Yeah. And so he disrobed and it, um, it suited him very well. And he really blossomed both as a translator and as a writer and so on. And so very wonderful, wonderful person. And yeah, so then going through works by various Dalai Lamas and the way I would do it is basically if I chose to do a particular text that I thought would be very interesting in English, fun to read in English and meaningful in English, then try to find a Lama who was kind of an expert, you could say, in that field. So, for instance, when I was working on the first Dalai Lama's text, a book I did on the first Dalai Lama, I really wanted to do his notes on the Kalachakra Tantra. Now, he had given an oral teaching, and he didn't write those notes. His disciples attended, attending that made notes on his main points he made during the teaching. So I thought that would be a wonderful read, because in English, nobody knows anything about Kalachakra. I mean, there was the Shambhala prophecies, but nobody knew anything whatsoever about the practice or two stages of Tantra or anything like that about Kalachakra. Zero, zilch, nada. So I thought that would make a great read. And at the time, the greatest living Kalachakra expert in India was probably Lati. Well, who was accessible was Lati Rinpoche in Gyanda and Shartse. And uh, Dalai Lama always you know, summoned him whenever he was giving a Kalachakra initiation to come and help with everything from preparation to set up and helping the Dalai Lama get things straight for how to do it and stuff like that. So one of the Dalai Lama's through, although they didn't the word Jung's in or Shensab for him, but one of his sort of spiritual advisors, I guess you could say. And I went, uh, when I asked him about it doing, he said, well, I haven't looked at that sort of literature, literary side of Kalachakra for about 30 years, so you'll have to forgive me if I have to pull down a reference book from time to time because, you know, this is the 13th, the first Dalai Lama teaching this in like maybe, I don't know what, 1420 or 1425, so <laughs> almost 550 years ago. So there may be some obscure passages and uh, I may or may not pick up on absolutely everything. So if I have to check, please don't be upset. <laughs> but then he just started rattling it off like he had just read it all yesterday. It was just amazing. And I had the good luck with uh, working on the seventh Dalai poems, Meditations to Transform the Mind, which first came out as uh, Songs of Spiritual Change. That a friend of mine from uh, Saranat, had come up to learn translation and to serve in the Tibetan library. And he wanted to practice his English. And we'd become friends when he was down in Sarnath because I had spent a winter there. 
a winter break in Sarnath where the school is for Tibetan studies. And at the time, there was a lama living in a, who was in a hospital right behind my house and was in ill health. So he had to stay in the Tibetan medical hospital, residential hospital for about six months or a year on treatment. So he was sort of, you could say, a captured, I had a captured audience or a captured lama. So I went over to visit him and I showed him the book and I said, I'd really like to translate this. And I hear that you're really especially good on Lojong tradition and Lojong terminology and literature and so on. And so what do you think if I visit you two or three times a week for an hour or so? You must get very bored just sitting over here in the hospital all day with nowhere to go and nothing to do. And he picked it up and he said, oh, well, he said, the problem with this is if you get 10 lamas reading some of these verses, you're going to get 10 different interpretations because it's written in poetry and so some of it quite terse. And I said, yeah, yeah, well, that's perfectly fine by me, but... Uh, Anyway, let's read through it and get your interpretation. <laughs> and he very graciously, once or twice a week, depending on how he was doing at that time, and my own schedule would read through one of those works and it took about a year to read through the whole thing. But uh, again, he was just very, very wonderful. He didn't really have any hesitation with anything in the whole collection. And some of it's very deep some of the emptiness texts and the bodhicitta and, and the two texts on chakra samvara, other um, very profound. So that was very, very wonderful. But uh, also having Ling Rinpoche and Trijan Rinpoche and Dharamsala was, they were both the greatest living masters on the planet at that time in the Tibetan Buddhist world. I mean, you could take 10 of any other Lama and put them in their little toe. <laughs> In my opinion, you could go into those guys with anything. What made them so exceptional? Or why were they so exceptional? I would say because in Tibet, they were the best of the best. And they had really great training and they were both child prodigies, you know, great tokus of very high rank, but child prodigies. And both of them had tough teachers. So they weren't spoiled like some tokus are spoiled brats. You know, they have very poor education and uh, unless they have a good tutor and a very strict manager who really keeps them at it. And of course, one thing for, for literature is you need someone who really has perfect, remembers everything they ever learned. You know, because uh, literature is like that. It's, you're reading things that were written hundreds of years ago and each one of those, you know, every branch of Tibetan Buddhism has something of its own use of language. So Lamrim does, Lojong does. For that reason, the Kenjur and Tenjur are in like different categories. Like there's the Prajnaparamita section and the, the Vinaya section and the Uma, the Majamaka section, <laughs> Abhidharma section, the Pramana section, and uh, the general chit chat section. Sort of soak, they call it, which is miscellaneous, I guess you could say. Doesn't fit anywhere, but just things that came up in the Tantra section and different classes of Tantra. So they all used words in their own way. And then, if say it's a Lama writing for a, say, second Dalai Lama traveled a lot all over central Tibet and up 
title up to kings and queens and great scholars and high tukus and all that. So often they'll throw in words which are just unique to the, those peoples, to those places. So someone who is widely educated and widely trained, and in their case, of course, they both did several three-year retreats, which does wonders for your memory. <laughs> so they, you could go to them with anything, and they could just pop it out like... What do you mean by it does wonders for your memory? I can think of at least three different possible things you're implying there. <laughs> well, I think just that it... I think meditation, intense meditation, does certainly increase memory power, and it does give you instant recall or total recall uh, of everything you've learned. It brings it all back. And then, of course, maybe not only this life, but previous lives learning. Ling Rinpoche and Tritra Rinpoche, it's hard to imagine they learned all of what they knew in this life. Because there seemed to be nothing they did not know. They really were just such amazing beings. I think the only one who even came close to that outside of them was probably the previous Tilgo Kenze. He also was like that very widely, widely. I think part of it, you know, some lamas do a lot of practice, but they don't, they just receive a few lineages and don't, go outside of that and they just stick to that and they'll be great and if you study that with them that's wonderful but uh, those three Trijana Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche, Dilgo Kenze they try whenever a Lama passed through the area that held a lineage they had not received they would always try to get that person to come and give them that lineage even if it was just like a very sort of humble turnip farmer kind of monk holds a lineage that they didn't have they would immediately sort of try and get them to visit and host them and host them for a dinner and chit chat and then do a kind of a formal transmission how on earth did they practice all of that you know that's the thing i always hear those stories and i wonder how on earth did they catalog that and practice it yes but you know once it's in your brain it's in your brain it's like I was watching a movie made in South Africa once and the mother of the house is saying to the lady, now when you go to town, please get this and this and this and this and this. And then she says, aren't you going to write any of this down? And the woman says, well, a white woman's memory is a piece of paper. <laughs> so some people just remember. <laughs> and it's actually in there, right? It's, I mean, everyone remembers who was their first girlfriend, their first kiss, their first this, their first that. We'll remember the highlights and the lowlights of our life and the stuff in the middle might get a little waffly. But I think it's burning into the memory. You know, Gaelic Rinpoche was said he could, uh, he was one of the greats, he was one of the three candidates for the Panchen Lama and probably the actual Panchen Lama in my opinion. But he was said he could memorize 30 pages in a tea break you just and he when I once asked him, but he said, you know, it's not that hard. You just kind of read it and then you kind of burn it into your mind. <laughs> but in terms of practice, I think 
It's not that Dilgo Kenze or Ling Rinpoche or what uh, Trisen Rinpoche did all of those different practices. They learned them, and then within their own practice, if you do Yamantaka or Chakra Samvara, everything's in there. If there are different lineages of transmission, uh, different tantras even, 90% of it will be the same, 10% will be different. So it's like that expression goes, the one who studies other traditions well, that studying doesn't in any way harm his understanding of his own tradition, it just deepens it. So I think it's like that, that they continue their own main practices and they may do a afternoon practice or a weekend practice emphasizing whatever is this other thing they didn't receive, especially if they plan at some time to give the initiation because they have to do the, the what's called the leirung, the qualifying, qualifying practice. But uh, yeah, having them certainly helped a great deal. And of course, uh, once I moved back west, it was a bit of a problem because in Dharamsala, there's lots of lamas, and they all have great respect for books and translation, and they, mostly they leave, um, they do their own practices in the morning, and they leave their afternoons open for visitors. And mostly those are, you know, disciples asking for this, that, or the other, or advice on issues, like Tibetan businessmen will, offer, will ask, where can I go to do business next summer? And people will ask my daughter, is this problem? And can you suggest something that she can do to solve it? And it's a lot of that sort of stuff. But also you'll have, you know, such and such a tuku coming in and saying, you know, I want to do the three-year retreat. And would you clarify these few points in the practice? Or I want to do a six-month retreat. And you'll have students coming in and saying, I'm studying this and this and this. And this is a bit of a problem for me. And how do I work that out? And and you have people like me walk in with a text and say, Rinpoche, I'm translating this book by the third Dalai Lama, and I've asked 10 different Geshe's what this line means, and nobody has got a clue. Because <laughs> sometimes it's like that if they're in verse. You know, the, only if you can find the original commentary to that verse written by someone. It's written in cryptic verse, and probably many Tibetans have memorized it but they've memorized it without thinking exactly what it means. Uh, because they'll have the general meaning. But you look at it in general, if you look at Tibetan, it could be translated in five or six different ways. And in English, we can't be like that, where you just leave it hanging. And so anyway, <laughs> having them was great. And in the West, it became a problem. I was lucky in Toronto uh, after I moved back from the West, I was on Toronto Island for a while, and Toronto had Zazab Toku, a very young Toku from Sarah Monastery, who had been sent to Australia to translate for one of Lama Tubin Yeshe's centers, uh, with a, a Sarah Lama Geshe Loden was his name. Now he's got his own center, Geshe Loden, in Australia. And Zazab later moved to Canada and uh, set up four or five centers up there. So he was very wonderful. So any issues came up and he was strong practitioner. He'd live just, uh, still lives just like lamas do in Dharamsala where they, you know, get up at five and practice till 11 and then have their lunch and from one till three or one to four, it's open door to whoever comes with whatever issue to discuss. And then the evening, 
evening walk and then evening practice and like that. So that was very wonderful. He was very helpful. And I was going through my book on the second Dalai Lama, Six Yogas of Niguma. I mean, I had already finished the translation, but I was preparing it for publication. And of course, that means checking difficult points. And I had a lot of different texts in there from selected works of the second Dalai Lama. His texts on emptiness, some of them in verse works, were very tight and very terse. So that was very helpful. And uh, when I was when I go to Montreal, there used to be a wonderful Geshe that had come over with the refugees in 1971, I think it was, Geshe Kenrub, and he also was very, very wonderful. And then also in Toronto, there's a great Kamakargu Lama, still alive. He's now like 90-some, but when I was there, he was a young spring chicken of 80 or so, 75 or so. <laughs> no, he was probably about 70. And uh, he was one of the sort of great Lama scholars in the Kamakargu school. Um, mm -hmm. And he was also, if I had issues, points of interest, he was always very, also very, very helpful. And then, a, so most of my books sort of formed like that. And some of the others, I was just inspired to give them a try because things had thrown me into those kind of avenues, like uh, living in the face of death. Just somehow I get, kept getting drawn into little projects. And I ended up with a lot of materials and then thought to publish it. And uh, so in that, I'd worked on some movies in 79, 80, 81, in which a death bardo ritual was done and worked with another recording agent who recorded the audio of uh, funeral music, you could say, ritual music for funerals, and other sort of things I'd encountered. And... Then I just had this dream. I was walking through a street of London and saw a sign in the wind and blowing in the wind and went in there a little while later when I was in London, was walking down a street and there was that sign and it turned out to be a bookstore, which was also a publisher, Rutledge and Keegan Paul. So I went in and introduced myself and they said, oh, we'd love to do some of your books. Why don't we do something on death and dying, that's like a hot subject at the moment. So some of them were sort of inspired in that way, just by coincidence. Some of them by mystical ways. When I was working on the 13th Dalai Lama, I felt the volume still needs something else. So I picked up his various volumes and just thumbed through them like this until I felt I was getting warm and then stayed on the one volume and went like this five or six times and popped it and it came out to a page with a very wonderful little book on the sort of the summary of all the different tantric Buddhist lineages in Tibet. So uh, in that way, sometimes what I would do would just be mystically inspired, as in that case, sometimes dream inspired. As a and it was very funny in the early days when I was uh, translating, I would often, I was a period when I was practicing a lot of dream yoga. And sometimes I would dream of passages I had translated in a book I was working on and of alternate translations to it or of mistakes in the translation, stuff like that. And I'd wake up 
with that as strongly on my mind as if it were just a conversation I'd had with the Dalai Lama five minutes ago or some other great Lama five minutes ago. I use that example just because those kind of things stick in your mind. It was that that would stick that clearly. <laughs> okay, two rapid fire questions to wrap up this episode. Okay, first question is your favorite translation. Second question is your most challenging translation. My favorite is probably still the seventh Dalai Lama's uh, Songs of Spiritual Trains, which was republished as Meditations to Transform the Mind. It's not my best translation because it was one of the first three or four things I did. But I love all the works in it. And I love the kind of flow that it took as it took its own shape. And I would say that as I travel around the world, I still most often get people coming up to me and say, oh, by the way, that book, I bought that 30 years ago or 35 years ago, and I've been reading it ever since. And it's every month I'll read one or two poems out of that, and it completely picks me, picks me up. <laughs> so, and I, I'm the same. Whenever I read anything from that, I still just am really, really impressed by the Seventh Dalai's character and by his ability to express such deep, deep ideas in such simple poetic language. That's one of my, certainly one of my favorites. I also very much like the second Dalai's book on his uh, Nyamgur, Songs of Enlightenment, which uh, he signed many of them as uh, written by the mad beggar monk, <laughs> who I, for, that was first published as uh, Mystical Verses by a Mad Dalai Lama by by um, Quest Books in Chicago. Later was bought out by, the, the, after it went out of print, the reprinting rights were purchased by Snowline. It was brought out with a different title as they are wont to do. And even though uh, the first book I did on Dalai which is Essence of Refined Gold with a commentary by present Dalai Lama, even though it probably has, uh, is the least accurate in terms of lit literary meaning or treatment of each sentence, it's still, I think, the one that has brought the biggest benefit to peoples. <laughs> so that was really my first crack at things. And I really should have reworked it, I suppose, but I was happy with how it came out. And it was one of those things where it just kind of rolled off the pen spontaneously and then came out in English and then was translated to Italian and Spanish and French and Russian and Mongolian and went into a dozen or so Portuguese, some legal languages and some where they just pirated them and so on. And, uh, then it just had perfect timing. It was just before the Dalai Lama got his first U.S. visa, and he was going, when the Russians heard he was coming to America, they said, oh, we have to bring him, make him come to Russia first. So they rushed up to Darmstadt and rushed him off to Russia <laughs> and to Mongolia. And so that came out just before he went. And that book, the third Dalai Lama had taught that very much through the Mongol regions. 
in what was it, 1578 or something like that, when he was traveling through that region. And 1580, 1585, he taught that book many times to Mongols, and it sort of became the foundation of Mongolian Buddhism. So the Dalai Lama bought 50 copies and took it and gave it out in Russia and in Kalmukia and up in Buryat and then out. So when I later, 15 years later, went through those regions, I was kind of, everyone had the copy of that book and rushed out to have me sign it. <laughs> Many of them had it in Russian translation and Mongolian translation. And by the way, that first visa of the Dalai Lama to America was actually my father-in-law uh, at the time, Irving Mandel, who had gotten the Dalai Lama that that visa because he had never been able to get a visa before that, basically because of communication problems with with the American government and their sort of shyness over some of the Tibet issues. But that's another story. Otherwise, certainly six yogas of Naropa and six yogas of Naguma as my own favorite practice texts. Those have been very, very beneficial to me personally. And of course, I use them as teaching manuals when I travel around the world teaching. And I've taught them probably in 20 countries over the past 30 years. And some many hundreds, if uh, probably even a few thousand people do practices based on those transmissions. And, uh, and perhaps one text I really am very happy to have translated was the first Yamataka Sadhana in English which I did with Dobum Toku and Steve Batchelor and a few others. And our translation wasn't perfect. It had some errors in it, including printing errors and stuff like that. But it was the first time Yamantaka so was ever translated into English. So that for me is, is my main practice. I'm very honored to have done that, even though I look back at it as one of my imperfect things. But it's like a baby learning to walk. Falling down is as much fun in learning to walk or as much part, a valuable part of the experience as not falling down. And certainly the translation of the Kala Chakra generation and completion stage yogas, because again, it's the first time in the history of the Western world that a, a European translation of those important practices were ever made. So, and to have do that with, under the supervision of the great Lati Rinpoche, who you know, he passed away a few years ago, but that was just such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah, it's it's a really remarkable body of work that you've uh, accomplished. And like you said, many, many firsts, and also the closeness with which you were able to um, have access to the living tradition, as well as as well as, as access to the text themselves. So it, re it really is a remarkable body of work. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a step on the way of the trans transference or transmission of Dharma to the West, certainly. But, you know, some of the translators working now, their work is far superior, in my opinion, because those of us working in the 70s and 80s, we're all sort of in the dark about how, to, what kind of language to use and how to shape and develop a language and a feeling for this sort of stuff that would really endure. And of course, the knowledge of Buddhism for us was limited. Our knowledge of uh, Tibetan was limited. And 
you know, for us learning Tibetan under the masters in the 70s was more difficult because they had never taught white people before. <laughs> they never taught foreigners before. So they were very shy and slow at doing it. And we had never, Western people had never studied in that depth with them before. So from our side, we were slow and clumsy. And from their side, they were sort of slow out of shyness. So I think, you know, people studying today under the various programs are some wonderful, wonderful translators and translations being done out there. You know, the Pandurika Translation Group and associated with uh, the, the Chukyung Trumpas people are descending from them and the Chukyung Yimas group coming out of Nepal and translating down in Bagaya every winter. And that kind of teamwork has made, you know, obviously what they can do will basically be waves washing away the footprints that we early guys did. <laughs> but that's fine. That's the way things are in the world of transmission. And uh, I think certainly is something as fluid as Dharma, where you know, Dharma Buddha has said he didn't want Dharma to become a hybrid. He wanted it to be something that one reason he didn't allow everything to be written down that he said during his lifetime is he wanted it to be a living experience. So just like the stuff that people like myself and Jeffrey Hopkins and Bob Thurman and Herbert Gunther and so on, uh, Evans Wentz, uh, stuff work that we've done that will sort of become washed away in the great waves, oceanic rising waves, hopefully, at least that's my hope. They will become washed away by the great works of future generations, including some of those wonderful, wonderful teams of translating working today. Uh, but at the same time, as if it weren't for the first pioneers doing stuff, those later ones wouldn't be there. So it's kind of a, a natural unfoldment or sequence, I would say. And it's my honor and pleasure to have been part of that in some small way. Glenn Mullen, thank you very much. I enjoy my pleasure. Bye-bye for now. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.